Welcome to The Tipping Point. We're recording this in Kingston, New York on October 17th, 2018. I'm Guthrie Lord, introducing Matt Edge, the founder of Democracy Coffee and the People's Empowerment Project. Also joining us tonight, once again, we have John House Wilson, activist, educator, comedian. Thanks for joining us, John. Hey, what's going on? How's it going? So, we've got a lot to talk about tonight. We've got the, the state of the Republican Party. And this has been sort of the, you know, 50-pound elephant in the room that nobody wants to talk about. You know, it's... Oh, uh, I get it. Elephants. I get it. That was good. That was good. (laughs) Yeah, there's some legitimate questions that the Republican Party has gone off the rails. And there's a real question for us as members of civil society, we're a good government organization, who has long and continues to hold a nonpartisan perspective. Uh, we need to be, necessarily. We need to look at corruption. We need to look at money and politics objectively and call balls and strikes. And that need is rubbing up against the, the nature of the Republican Party itself is such that it's actively working to undermine democratic norms. And there's been a series of instances where they've been falling outside of the boundary of the rules of the game. Yeah, and, and undermining our basic democracy. Yeah, and, and, and doing certain things like cheating. Wait a minute. <laughs> cheating in politics? No. That's crazy talk. <laughs> yeah, but they're going beyond the regular cheating. They're going beyond <laughs> regular cheating. So is, is it a question that, like, is the Republican Party no longer really, like, a political party? Is that part of it? Because I've heard this, I've heard them, you know, characterized as, like, it's kind of actually like a gang or like it's kind of like it's not really a party anymore. It's doing something else or like it's just an arm of corporations, you know. Right. Although, hey, I mean, a lot of political parties have been an arm of a lot of things over the years. Sure. Um, well, when do you think that's do you think this is new, though, Matt? Do you think that's like a new thing? No, no. I mean, clearly, this <laughs> has been this has been unfolding for, you know, easily since World War Two. But I think it's been slow sort of building to a critical tipping point that we have crossed where mm-hmm. we're like slowly the, the Republican Party has ceased to be has ceased to behave as a political party would and should behave in a democratic system. I mean, let's talk about some of what the attributes of a, of, of a political party are. are they're well, first, they're playing by the rules of the democratic system that they operate in and they're they're driven by ideology and and ideology and policy where i think the republican party has in particular and both parties are, are to blame but the republican party in particular has fallen off the rails is that they have ceased to be about ideology and are about self-interest like isn't there also like a thing too where like they're supposed to represent the opinions of the people in the party like there's supposed to be some right. i know it's crazy talk again like we just saw how this played out with the Democratic Party where, you know, they weren't exactly necessarily listening to the base. And it seems like the Republican Party, there is the rabid base, but there is a process by which they tell the base maybe what to think or maybe who to attack. And this is, again, it's not to attack Republican voters, but it's to say the party itself is not a good faith actor with its own party members. Yeah. Like they, mm-hmm. they're, they're misrepresenting or miscommunicating on purpose with their own, you know, the people within their own party and their own representatives almost. 
Right. Yeah, that's one thing we want to stress on this episode. It might sound like we're attacking people who vote who have voted Republican in the past. And this really isn't about that. It's about the the party being hijacked. But there's yeah, there, there's a certain level of disinformation that has come out from the Republican Party, and there's this different disinformation has been happening for a long time. But this is different. Sure. Well, I, you know, I'm this is beyond in doing research for this podcast. I'm going on websites and ads are popping up, right? Attacking a congressperson in our district. I won't say who, um, but those ads are paid for by a pack that is being primarily funded by evangelical Christians. And that's not being paid for by the party. It's not being paid for by the congressman. These are outside forces or these are people within the upper echelons of the party. So that's also like another thing is like huge piles of money, of course, huge piles of money. Right. I mean, the floodgates are open. That's I mean, that's new. I mean, I guess I don't know. There's a history of that. Right. I mean, of money. But is this new? I mean, this is new. Right. The, the amount of money, the way the money's being spent. It's getting worse. I mean, it's like it's hard to say that like. There's so much more than there was maybe five years ago or ten years ago. I mean, there is. It's getting worse um, with inflation. I think it's just. I mean, it's getting easier to control. I mean, the, the dark money, like the opening the doors to the five hundred one c four loophole, which allows for nonprofit organizations who don't have to disclose their donors to give unlimited amounts of money to super PACs. So what you can have is what they call dark money. So it can be a foreign actor. It can be anyone. It's, it's anonymous money that's legally allowed to be used to what in lay terms is a bribe to, to spend money, to get access, to get power, to get policy passed. The fact that it's legal is perhaps more evidence that the system is fundamentally corrupt than if they were breaking the law. The fact is that they're not breaking the law. And that, that says that it's like not only has the Republican Party gone off so far off the rails, but the system and that's largely put into place that's been driven by the Republican Party is, is a free-for-all. It's a total, yeah. total free-for-all where foreign actors and, – and I keep saying foreign actors. like that, That's like the main thing. But Special interest multinational groups. corporations and foreign actors yeah. – um, foreign actors like Hugh Laurie. No, I'm just kidding. Well, and hey, just, just like, and on that point, you know, the news right now in Texas is Beto O'Rourke is has raised more money than any other Senate senator running, or I'm sorry, somebody running for Senate mm-hmm. in the history um, of the United States, and that's that's a Democrat. So it's, it is on both sides. But I guess the Republican Party, what's a little bit different there is that there's almost no voices now within the Republican Party saying that we should have campaign finance reform. It used to be there were people there. Mm-hmm. If it was John McCain, you know, there was other people through the years who supported some kind of campaign finance. And there are still Democrats who were like, hey, maybe lots of dark money and corporate money flooding the system is not exactly good. But at this point, the Republican Party seems to have said it's working enough for us and we're not interested in going after it. And that's yeah. and that's different. I think that is different. There's always there's usually always voices within a party saying that corruption's bad. Right. Right? I mean, there's at least somebody. It's yeah. not that the party I mean, for but the most part. They had John McCain and yeah. he's gone. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. yeah, there's always at least somebody. And so it, I think it, that, that is dying within the party. Whatever little resistance to money in politics among the elected elites of the party it was there is dwindling. And so that's changing. Well, and also, and potentially, the judges will also be deciding about how much money goes in, too. And that's something, we we can get into the the judge situation, but but the money going in as well, it, it, it... there are going to be judges making decisions about how much money can be spent on things. And we know that a conservative court may not exactly want to limit that. 
So that's that's another issue there. Yeah. So everybody's upset about the Supreme Court. What other specific examples do we have where the GOP has really gone off the rails or across the line? Or yeah, I mean, I think the issue of voter suppression, where you in in Georgia, you had fifty thousand people just recently. We're not talking about you know old Jim Crow. We're talking about in two thousand eighteen, fifty thousand people targeted. Presumably because they're of color. I mean, almost undoubtedly because they're of color and I have a propensity to vote for Democrats are getting thrown off the rolls. Yeah, this is the, I have an article here saying that they're saying it's one in 10. That it's been happening for a number of years, but in 2017, it's about one in 10 of the entire uh, voting populace or registered voters of Georgia have been purged. And the thing with that that's really crazy is that it's so Brian Kemp, who's running for governor there in an all-red state, completely dominated by Republicans, he was a Secretary of State, right? Secretary mm-hmm. of State, it's a weird thing that there's a Secretary of State of States, but he, he was that, and one of the main things they do is oversee the voter rolls and oversee voting. And so he was the Republican Secretary of State, and he was the one who encouraged there to be this pretty heavy-handed purge, which he's saying, oh, it's because they moved out of state or because blah, 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 but they're using a very heavy cutting technique. They're leaving a lot on the floor, on the cutting room floor. And so he was the head of that, and now he's running for governor. It's like that. That is again breaking the fundamental rules. He doesn't want to have a free and fair contest. He wants to purge as many people out of the system as possible who might vote against him. And, and this this Georgia thing is is particularly important for listeners who haven't been following Southern politics because Stacey Abrams, who is the Democratic nominee, is the first African American woman nominated to a gubernatorial post in Georgia's history. She was endorsed by Bernie Sanders. What you're seeing is a Republican Party terrified. I mean, the whole silver lining in this is that they, they're they doing these things and they know that this is going to hurt them in the press when they do this kind of stuff. They know this is going to hurt them. But do they care, though? I mean, <laughs> they, But they're scared. I think they're doing this because they're scared. If they weren't scared, they wouldn't have to deal with the political liability of breaking the rules. And so I think they feel they need to break the rules to win because they can't win legitimately and this is yeah and this is because if looking up the numbers over and over again it's because they know right that there are more registered democrats than republicans right like there are like in 2016 48 percent of all registered voters identify as democrat 44 percent republicans right and that's that's just in 2016 but it, it goes actually deeper than that the people who lean towards democrat so the majority Right, 2018 Democrats lead GOP by 12 million reg- registered voters. So that's new voters, right? Mm-hmm. So 40 percent. So they know 40 percent of new voters are Democrats. 29 percent right. Republicans. It's almost like they've kind of said, like, what we stand for is you know getting our sort of crony capitalist buddies elected, and it's not selling to to the working class. It's not selling to the populace, those of us who get to vote. So they're like, okay, so we'll just cheat. We're just like sort of throwing in the towel on the system. And at what point does civil society and the media need to throw in the towel on them and say, if you're not going to act like a political actor is supposed to act in a democratic society, then you're not going to be given the platform and the courtesies and the, the social norms that are afforded to one of the main two political parties in our system. And so we need to... What this podcast is about is really examining, asking ourselves, is the Republican Party acting like a legitimate actor in our democratic system? And I think the answer to that question is they're not. If they have to, once they have to rely on cheating the system, 
and not your message. But when it no longer becomes about strategy and ideology, uh, ideology yeah. and policy, and it becomes more about cheating and winning to preserve a power, then it's going off the rails. Oh yeah, I mean, I mean that's yeah, and we know that that Karl Rove, the Republican Party, said we're going to identify state legislatures as being the most important races. They threw a bunch of money at them and they won. They won big time and they control a lot of these state legislatures. And people are like, well, who cares? It's, I don't even know who my state assemblyman is. I don't know if that matters. But obviously the, they're the people who control you know, these right. gerrymandered redistricting processes. And so that's something that – and luckily it's come under fire, which is good, right? There's been some gerrymandering cases that have gone up in the courts and we've had a couple of like wins for democracy. Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. I believe, they're going to have to redraw the map. Yeah. But yeah, I mean gerrymandering – I just I just had this the other day where I'm trying to explain uh, to a kid – I work with kids – and trying to explain to a kid why – you know, politics might not match people's interests and just showing them the basic math on how you gerrymander a district and how you can get three red districts mm-hmm. out of a place that has a majority blue or three blue districts out of a place with majority red. And, you know, don't get me wrong. Democrats have done this. But I guess what's new is that Republicans did this on a large scale with an organized plan from the top down. Right. I mean, Democrats have gerrymandered a, a ton of times, and sometimes for the right reasons. They sometimes they were doing it because they wanted to make sure that minorities had a voice, and sometimes they did it because they wanted to make sure that you know certain certain opinions or perspectives or communities had representation. But this is this is a large scale, organized, top down Republican RNC strategy to make sure that it's gerrymandered. To disenfranchise people is what it's doing. They're talking yeah. about disenfranchising people, and in a representative democracy, which is what we're told we have, when a political party... <laughs> we're told, we're told, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When a political party's, one of their main strategies to win is not presenting a, a vision for the country, but to disenfranchise people, yeah. that's no, they're no longer entitled to the respect and authority of a major political party in this country. It's because the numbers aren't there, but it's also because their vision isn't popular. Mitch McConnell this week, just, he peeped. It's like a little teeny, little teeny thing. He just let go and he's like, well, you know, you know, I can't even do a Mitch McConnell. He's, he's, you know, he's half asleep, but you know, saying that we're going to have to go after Medicare and social security. And that is not popular. That's a core part of their agenda. And nobody likes that, especially not old people on social security and Medicare who go out and vote. <laughs> That's. I mean, that is not a popular like, platform. It killed George W. George W. went after Social Security, and that did not work. People do not like that. So it's, it's their ideology is also just not popular because their ideology is deeply problematic. And so what do they do? I mean, now, I mean, if you just looked at, at if you just look at it objectively, the Democrats need to win the national popular vote by seven percent to break even in the House of Representatives. That's striking. So they can't win over the hearts and minds. So they're like, oh. Let's have the, the politicians pick the voters instead of the voters picking the politicians. And that's, that's antithetical to everything that, that a democratic society is about. And so at what point do we, we say, okay, you're, you're almost like a – it's more like a, acting like more like a cartel than it is a political party. And at what point do we say this is a hostile actor in our democratic system and needs to be viewed as a threat – to our as a, as a threat to our people to, and, to, and to what they're doing these these tax breaks you know they're saying that they need to do and here i'm going into ideology no hey you don't have to wait in my point is just saying that their ideologies their actual hidden ideology is not popular right it's not and it's yeah. not it's not that veiled right. but it is veiled beneath 
um, you know, the politics of identity, right. And of being like, yeah, being pro-choice or, or, um, you know, pro-life is that's the most important aspect and our real ideology is being veiled underneath it. And I, in all of this too, this is the thing that is triggering to me, uh, in a, in a deep way of late has been that it's also the judiciary, right. That, which is an incredible. It's an important branch of government, right? We know we know the Republican Party in the Congress has a certain agenda. Maybe it's a slightly hidden agenda. The executive branch, we're not even really getting into that. But obviously, Trump is breaking Deeply the norms troubling. of the executive branch and changing the rules of the game. But one of the things that's happening that we're not really looking at is is the judiciary. And why is that important? Well, just recently in Indiana, a judge said Indiana can't purge voters there. Right? They've also said you can't gerrymander. As bad in Pennsylvania, in Pennsylvania, and the Republicans have said we need to get as many judges as possible out there, and they're of course saying that right. this is about having non-political judges. Right. But the reality is, it's judges who have a very clear agenda, right. and that's what's happening at the Supreme Court, and that's what's happening circuit courts, and that's happening the appeals court. Right. What right. they're essentially saying is, we're trying to cheat. You're telling us we can't cheat, so we're going to buy the judge. <laughs> Or we're going to buy the umpire. You know what I mean? Sure. And, and, and this is and it's important also to remember, like the Voting Rights Act, there was stuff in the Voting Rights Act that was struck down in 2013 because we had a swing vote in there. It wasn't a it wasn't a progressive, transparent you know, set of judges. It was like, you know, pretty moderate judges. And they voted to strike down parts of the Voting Rights Act. Right. And so that and now with Kavanaugh in, it is clearly on the side of, yeah, you could force people to have IDs. You could potentially gerrymander. We're going to see. There's going to be cases that come up. And what, we, what we're also seeing now is Donald Trump has appointed more appeals court judges than anyone else in his first two years of office. So he's got more appeals court judges. And that's that's where they go before they go to the Supreme Court. They go to the federal appeals courts. Right. And that's where cases go that are like, hey, is gerrymandering bad? And he's got 29 judges that, I, I, again, this is the normal process. But the goal of this normal process is to stop democracy from functioning properly right they don't want people to be able to have representative districts and they don't want people to be able to get their voting rights easily they want to make it very hard for them they want to make sure that they have ids they want to make them jump through hoops hey maybe we'll bring back a written test maybe we'll bring back a land owning qualification we're going in that fucking direction yeah. i mean so that's so again, the judiciary—it's—it's it's, it's a traditional method, but the goal is deeply, deeply non-democratic and problematic. Okay, how about this one? How okay. about this one as well? Right, the full embrace—the Republican Party fully embracing Christian fundamentalism. Oh yeah, I evangelical that. Christians. Right. So this is something. Obviously, lots of religious movements over time have had an alignment with political parties, and this is not—it's not new for the Republican Party either, but. The kind of relationship it has with the Republican Party, that not that also a fundamental like change in our democracy? That like one party is very much, you know, they have to bow down to a certain religious ideology, and they can't they can't disagree with that ideology, or else right. they get they get hung up. I mean, we're getting into thick Bill of Rights territory when certain parties are trying to erode the Bill of Rights with your separation of church and state, where you have the, the vice president of the United States knee-deep in right-wing religious fundamentalist culture that happens to be working hand-in-hand -hand with military contractors. 
you're in really just weird territory. Or having like a, you know an education secretary who is a Christian fundamentalist who is controlling the federal education and then process. The vice president of the United States believes in conversion therapy, the brand of torture. And so I guess that kind of brings us to the next question of how should we as civil society and the media respond differently? Sure. Well, I think, I mean, the one thing that kills me all the time, and I'm, I, you know, I listen to a variety of different news sources, but the one thing that kills me all the time is that we believe that we have to give both sides of every argument equal treatment. And the problem, obviously, a, a big part of my problem um, with all of this is that it's a two-party system. I mean, I, there should be other parties involved. There should be a wider discussion. I'm a big fan of certain rep, you know, components of a parliamentary system. I would like there to be a wider diversity of opinions. I think that's better democracy. I don't know how we get that in our system. But because there's only two parties, we say that those two parties need to have equal time and that both of their perspectives are as legitimate. And so it's very hard to enter into quote-unquote, civil society and say maybe one side of the argument isn't legitimate. Maybe it is not democratic. Maybe it doesn't represent actual human values. Maybe it represents corporate interests and or I, money values. Yeah, I mean, I feel that friction. I mean, as, as, you know, running the People's Empowerment Project, I feel like, oh, it's my job to say the Republicans say this and the Democrats say this. You know, and in this instance, the, the Republican Party maybe is not deserved. Like you say, they're not playing by the rules. If you were talking about not disputing the basic facts, uh, so, so we've already given the examples of voter purges and gerrymandering and, and voter suppression on all sorts of levels, but but then you're talking about suppressing journalism. You know, basic, basic right. facts are, are under attack here, and once one party starts saying things that are obviously not true and they get taken as fact, then... Oh, I think it's really interesting that Trump turned around real quick in regards to the murder of a journalist in the Saudi Arabian consulate, right? So this is a journalist, and people, you know, Trump has said terrible things about the media over and over again, and he wishes he could, I don't know, stuff like, I wish you could I wish you could sock him in the face, so like somebody should take oh, them lock out. Him lock him yeah, up. Lock him up. Yeah, lock him up. A lot of those he types of things. To, he threatens to lock up journalists. Yeah. But so with the Saudi Arabia case, it, he very quickly came around and said, oh, okay, this journalist might have been murdered by them, but, eh, you know, I'm trusting Saudi Arabia on this. And that's an example of him, a long chain of him saying, yeah, that reporters, the media, news, that it's fake news, it's lies, and maybe we should, like, you know, go attack them in the parking lot? That's that's a change. That's a big change. And he's called the Washington Post out directly sure. calling them fake news. And so if I'm a Saudi Arabian prince... And I, you know, I'm like, I could do something that's going to be a major stain on us in the national stage. I'm going to look at the major world powers and I'm going to say, oh, who's going to care? Who's going to not do business with us? Who's not going to sell us weapons? And I'm going to look over at Donald Trump and I'm going to say, oh, he's already declared war on the Washington Post. He's not going to cut off diplomatic ties with us. You know, and so that's the danger of our own president viciously going after the media in such a wanton and reckless way is that we start seeing, you know, journalists are, I think, and I think we're going to see increasingly journalists being murdered and what Trump is doing is not helping. And I just, just a couple of points there. One, I want to, I do want to say that that journalist's name was Jamal Khashoggi. Um, and he was killed in the Saudi Arabian uh, embassy in Turkey. But an important point that you just made, he worked for the Washington post, Donald Trump, 
has said terrible things about the Washington Post and its reporters. And, and I'm not saying in any way, in any way that he was involved in this. But this, but he was in some way. He is involved with it. Well, of, well, of course. I mean, you know, <laughs> he's he's sold a hundred billion dollars worth of weapons to Saudi Arabia. We have an alignment with them. The Democrats actually, and that that weapons deal was signed by Obama. The hundred billion dollars. He's taking he's taking bragging rights about it. But yes, the, the all both parties in our system have a relationship with Saudi Arabia. But it's just important to notice that he criticizes that news media outlet all the time. Is he going to go out of his way to make sure that journalists are protected? If he's already like, I hate them. I think they're terrible you know and i won't even get into the bigger picture which is like oh the washington post is owned by like a a trillionaire jeff bezos he's not trillionaire but he's getting close he's getting close he's he's the richest person in the world if not he's the richest person in the world so we won't even get into that whole moment that'd be another one that'd be another podcast about you know the wealthy owning the you know means of communication but anyways (laughs) it's also it's also it's similar to blaming the hate speech or some of the hate crimes under the Trump presidency, he can't be, you know, it might be unfair to blame him for particular acts of people. But when, when the GOP has created a culture of racism, hate, and now journalists, you know, journalists being the enemy rather than the objective observers well, that, and, the, and the voice of the people, that's the dangerous. Yeah. And that's, and that's, I think, a really important distinction. We were talking about, you know, once an actor has gone beyond, once a political party has gone beyond ideology, what does that mean? And then a separate but equally relevant question is when that ideology is hate, is there a line in the sand that's been crossed? And, and what I'm talking about is at what point does when somebody, once you're organizing politically in this country to do something ideologically, like there's a Nazi, a straight up, uh, I just saw the headline. There's a, a guy running in the Midwest, a Republican running who's openly supportive of Nazis. And when people are organizing to harm people, specifically that's the organizing principle, to hurt people, that's when we have to say, you know, those rights, those free speech rights need to be curtailed. That's the classic example of that. And so we have political party that's embracing and increasingly allowing Nazi sympathizers to hold high office within their party. And I think that's another line that the Republican Party has crossed. Sure. And for like, you know, like 50, 60 years there, it was like there was that agreement that nobody can like be a Nazi and be in the Republican and Democratic Party. You know, ever since like that World War II thing, people were like, you know, you can't like openly be a Nazi and be part of the party machinery. And that that is a new norm that is breaking. Pre-1945, it's a little wishy-washy, but sure. Yeah. But yeah, no, that's been a good 50, 60 years agreement. No one could be a Nazi. In, in our major political parties, <laughs> and when journalism, and when journalists, and when when facts have become the enemy of the state, that's usually a pretty good indication you're no longer living in a democracy. Yeah, I mean, I'm seriously considering applying for Canadian citizenship. Oh yeah, do I it. I mean, it's like the I don't want to move to Canada. This is my home. I want to stay here. I want to live in. I live in Kingston, New York, and I love it here. But. We're seeing a tipping point. We're seeing all three branches of government being controlled by something that couldn't really accurately be described as a political party, as an actor, amorphous actor of special interest groups behaving more like a cartel, consolidating power in all three branches of government. And it's not – and again, we're we're talking about like mechanisms they're using to destroy democracy. But this is like – 
fundamentally, psychologically, sociologically mm. not interested in at democracy. all in democracy. And that our Constitution, even though they, they talk about it all the time, talk about our Constitution all the time, that they actually, at the core, don't like a lot of it, especially parts of the Bill of Rights. That's yeah. a, that's especially a part that's like, ooh, do we really need to do that? Like, that yeah. seems exhausting. You know, I mean, letting people assemble freely, that's not, that they have no interest in that. They do not want people to be able to assemble freely. And it seems more and more that they don't want us to be able to communicate freely and openly. Trump administration, by the way, is looking to get the names of people on an anti-Trump Facebook group. They want to get the list of who's on that list. Right. And ACLU's fighting it. But that's the kind of thing that they're interested in doing is being like, yeah, who's involved in that group? And it may come under, they may say, hey, this has to do with you know, threats to domestic terrorism or Antifa people who are going to go punch people, shoot people, whatever it was. But they they do want names. They, they'd like to have a list. And they would like to suppress your ability to communicate. When you juxtapose that with new laws being passed to criminalize protests where there are increasing penalties for exercising your right to assemble. There is an organized push to control every level of government, right? I mean, the list, the list of the number of states that have a Republican governor and a Republican legislature is very long. It's like 30 states, and there are six states where Democrats control the governorship and the legislature. So, again, it's large-scale, organized, and scary. And unapologetically undemocratic. Just, yeah. Um, and again, I don't, it's because I don't think that they really, at the core, they don't care. They're not interested. Or they think that democracy should be wealthy, educated, mostly white people expressing their opinion. And that's something that we haven't really talked about. They Maybe they believe in democracy, but they believe in a democracy in which only certain people have a voice. And that seems pretty clear, right? Maybe, okay, yeah, like, yeah, democracy, sure, but white men voting. Yeah. <laughs> if, and this is one of the things we can do, right? One of the things we can do would be to have a democratic Congress. It's not because the Democratic Party is going to solve all our problems. Trust me, I don't believe that. But to have any opposition to a one-party state would be good for democracy, good for transparency, good for investigating what's happening. So voting in the midterm would be a good idea, right? That would potentially be helpful. Although, let's see what happens. They say there's going to be a blue wave, but uh, it may not happen. Voter purges, you know? Who's going to be at the polls? And I don't yeah. mean to get conspiratorial, but will there be rallies for Trump? Will there be people trying to keep people from going to polls? I don't know if we're there yet, but we're not far. Will there be foul play? Oh, right. God. Dun, dun, dun. And I mean, I mean one of the, the examples of this is if you go back to Ohio in 2004, where you had exit polls being so far away from the actual vote totals that it was statistically almost impossible. And in the areas where it happened, it just so happened that voting machine manufacturers that donated heavily to the Republican Party Diebold, I remember that. Diebold, yeah, right? We're using voting machines that made it impossible to trace the results of the election. Right. Which in no respectable democracy do you make it untraceable. Because it just opens the door. Regardless of whether that proves that they were cheating or not, I tend to think it does. Just by the fact that you're doing that is highly suspicious. And if you look at the, the vote totals 
in the discrepancies of the, the exit polls and these black box voting machines, that actually swung the election in Ohio f- for George W. Bush. And this and this goes into the whole like Trump and his administration not attempting to make sure that vote hacking won't happen. They're just yeah. not doing not it. If it's Russians, if it's interior people. Yeah, didn't, didn't one of the manufacturers testify before the grand jury that these machines were vulnerable and this was exactly why? And, and yeah, Trump isn't, in, isn't interested in... No, voter security. They're not interested in voter security, which, again, any political party would say, yeah, we got to make sure people aren't hacking the, the vote, although ballot stuffing is common. But here's, here's a headline um, in The Guardian. Kids at a hacking conference show how easily U.S. elections could be sabotaged. These are 11-year-old hackers, and they were able to find secondary and third entry points into election machines 11 year olds at a hacking conference right so you you think about like okay you pay 10 guys to try to find a way to get in there and maybe push around a couple numbers that's not hard to do yeah (laughs) it's their opposition like regardless of whether that can be traced to the republican party the fact that they're out there opposing efforts to make these elections more credible is a red flag in and of itself. By the way, the second half of the show is tipping points after dark. And this is when we get conspiratorial. Really, it's like, oh, the family and then and the hackers well, and the are, election machines. Some of these are pretty well documented. Oh, hey, no, I'm on board. Of, of the party <laughs> acting like a cartel or a, yeah. a organized crime Syndicate, syndicate than than anything else. This, At least more than a political party. How about the net neutrality? Th- this Reddit, this thing that happened oh, on Reddit. Yeah. Do you want to talk about? Yeah, it? well, just net neutrality. So uh, you know, the Republican Party is not interested in having a free and open internet um, because they are paid by telecom companies almost more than anybody. We, Which we, is we, fine. Like if that's like that's totally a bullshit argument, but like that's, that's still that. within the norms of a party in a democratic system to oppose net neutrality. Okay. Well, like yeah, sure. arguably, sure, because some people don't believe that a free and open press, yeah. has is part of democracy and some people don't identify the internet as being a free and open press even though a lot of us use it that way but let's just at least give them standing as a as a political party to have a difference of opinion on that let's say let's let's chalk it up to ideology whatever let's do it let's do it but then you get to the next level deeper okay so this is like these are public comments being made online but it's like again it's the fec making a ruling you got to kind of be a wonk or a nerd or you got to be on reddit to be really caring about this but they're accepting public comments to give the illusion of Democracy, <laughs> and, this and goes, what happens? It's it's how, it's nine million comments. So up to nine point five. This is uh, reported yesterday in the New York Times that uh, up to nine point five million net neutrality comments were made with stolen identities, and they were presenting the Republican Party's position on net neutrality. So I mean, this gets back to what you were saying earlier, John, about them lacking a certain level of support within the public because they're not presenting a vision that's popular. You know, we're talking about a free and open internet. Hard to get a bunch of people to support that. So they're making them up. They're finding getting dead people mm. to to present these positions for them, posing as the citizenry. And that's yet another example of them going beyond. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And I know I know a lot of young men who are like they're tech guys. They love the Internet. Net neutrality is a big issue for them. And a lot of them are libertarian, Republican-leaning people. They're kind of like Pepe the Frog people. You know, I don't know if you guys know about Pepe the Frog and Kakistan and all that on Reddit. But they're kind of like libertarian, conservative, white, techie guys. And this was a big issue for them. They were furious with the FEC for trying to do this. So, again, part of the base, which would be like white, educated men not really supporting this. And they were like, well, how can we flub it? 
And then we can just, we can lie. We can have millions and millions of fake comments being like, I love not having a free and open internet. Please let AT&T control the traffic. Slow down my access to Netflix. You know, it's yeah. like whatever it is. <laughs> yeah. It's like that. That's what people want. No, that's not, that is not the public. The, the slower internet party. Yeah, like, exactly. Like, supporting that. <laughs> yeah. I'd like my internet to be slower, please. But some of these issues we're talking about with going outside the rails are overlapping. Like the way this overlaps with the money and politics issue where you have the big telecom giants looking to benefit, but to charge people more to have high speed access for certain content if they're paying them off. I mean, that's why cable television is so expensive. People are getting raked over the coals over cable television. They want to make the internet instead of being a place where you can exchange ideas, information can travel quickly. It's a place just for them to make money. And it's antithetical to their own ideology of the free market, of the free market of ideas. They're no longer the Republican Party. When we're calling them Republican Party, I think we're doing ourselves a disservice. I think we should perhaps say the Republican cartel, because that's the way they're behaving. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And once again, you don't even need to agree with the Democratic Party's stance on net neutrality for this. You just need to want to live in a free and open democracy where people's voices are actually heard. Yeah. I mean, and again, when we say the Republican Party, we're not talking about the voters. Voters who happen to be registered within the Republican Party because of something they once stood for, or maybe they agree with the ideology of what was once the Republican Party. Those people are allies. Those people agree. Money in politics is a problem. Those people are not the pro-corruption type. What we're talking about is the Republican Party elite, the elected Republican Party, the establishment, and the big moneyed interests behind them, that revolving tour, which is different. And I don't want people to get the wrong word. This is a big tent movement. We need everybody to deal with this crisis. That one party in particular has totally fallen off the rails. And I think it's hard to talk about this without talking about the Democratic Party. It's very... It's that trying to be both sidesism, you know, we need to... But, um, but we are going to do that. There's plenty to talk about within the Democratic Party. I mean, how much money do they take from communication companies? How much money do they take from Wall Street? And that's something to talk about. Right now, they're playing by the existing rules of the game, and it's part of the reason they're losing, right? And, hey, I'm kind of okay with people saying, like, I'm going to try to traditionally play by the rules of the game to a certain extent and lose. Um, but at the same time, my fear is that they will be dragged down, that they have to. They have to take as much money as possible, right? Mm -hmm. There's going to be those people who say, I'm going to take only small donations. But there's a lot of other people out there, including people who are running for Congress in this state or running for governor in this state who are taking large piles of money. And they can't not, because how else are they going to run? And, and looking at the ratios of small donors to large donors, like one nice thing that can be said about the Democratic Party is the number of small donors to large donors is much better than the Republican Party, you know? And so there are signs of democracy still within the Democratic Party. But that's, I think, a discussion for another day. <laughs> um, hey, we may actually have a Democratic Congress that they're not going to get anything done. Let's be clear about that. They're not going to be able to, there might be a couple of issues where they can work with Republicans and work with Trump, but they would at least be a check on some of the most problematic things that are being done. So they could say, okay, at least we could investigate that there are Russian hackers. If they, if they have the Congress, again, I'm, I don't have a ton of faith in the Democratic Party on certain things, but they would at least be able to say, we can have some hearings saying, are there people actively attempting to hack our election? Which is not being done right now. And so we're very close to having at least 
some spotlight shined on some of the activity of a party that is not interested in democracy and some pushback. So I don't, I don't put all my eggs in that basket, and I don't know if the blue wave is going to be as big as the blue wave should be based upon well, what the Republican Party is doing. The blue, wave. the blue wave is based on our enthusiasm to the extent that we get out and say, hey, we have a party that's gone outside of, of the norms in a democratic society and, and talk to our neighbors and have those uncomfortable conversations or whatever. Hey, so I have a funny story. I got called by pollsters, right? They called me on my cell phone at work. And I was like, oh, I got to do it. I got to do it. And they asked me a bunch of questions about the election, about my congressman and what made me, what swayed me one way or another and what ads have I seen. And it was very hard for me to answer a lot of the questions because I was like, I don't know how to communicate how unfavorable something is. And I don't know how to say because they're like, do you usually vote Democrat or do you like Democratic Party? And being like, well, it's complicated. So it was very hard for me to answer a lot of the questions. But one of the things that I said repeatedly was like – because I was like, well, I'm not really an independent or a moderate. I'm somewhere off the spectrum. I don't know where I am. But one of the things that was very clear to me over and over is saying like the reason I would vote for a Democrat, the reason I'm going to support a Democrat in my congressional district is because I want there to be a check because that's part of the system. There's supposed to be checks, right? And it's not because I think that – you know, his policies are going to actually be implemented or that I think that he's a, the most moral upstanding person because a lot of people are complicated. A lot of politicians. I'm talking about Delgado. Yeah, let's talk about Delgado. Yeah, I mean, he wasn't my number one pick, but I'm voting for him mostly because I think that having a Democratic Congress would be a good check on a party that has almost all the power and has no interest in democracy. Well, arguably, I mean, one of the biggest threats to democracy right now is the lack of an opposition party. You know, and if the Democratic Party isn't a real check to the to the Republican Party, then you know therein lies a tipping point. I mean, that's a whole a whole other yeah, episode. Future episode: Can a can a Democratic Party led by Chuck Schumer be an actual opposition party? <laughs> uh, Let's talk about Chuck Schumer. Where does he get so his money? One thing that I was hoping we would talk about, and I feel like we touched on, but maybe didn't you know knock out of the park yet, is. If what we're seeing is true, that the Republican Party has, has gone off the rails and is deserved of a new, uh, of being treated differently based on their acting in bad faith, what can we do? What's imperative on us as civil society, the media? Well, I think part of the question there is, will they actually relinquish power? And this is a bigger question of like, you know, one of the norms that we'd say is a normal democratic process is saying, okay, one party is almost always said, yeah, we're going to be out for a while. We're not going to control the Congress for a while. It's just not going to happen. We're going to be not the party in power for a while. Or we got four years with an executive and we got to let him do what he's going to do. And there's a big question in my mind is like, will the Republicans actually abide by that? Will they actually say, yes, I'm going to give up my seat or will, yes, I'm going to um, respect the, the election results or yes, I'm going to allow a Supreme court judge to be appointed by a president, which hey, I'm bringing that up again. Um, but there's a big question in my mind. And if, and if it is the case that a single party, not interested in democracy, awash with money and completely and totally in control of most of the levers of power is not interested in letting go of those levers of power or at least taking a break from that power, then isn't it the solution becomes large-scale civil disobedience? Well, then we not, not respecting that party and its power, working right. in opposition to it through different means to advocate for democracy. Right. I mean, civil disobedience comes to mind. 
Um, but even I think like on a more basic level, civil society calling out the Republican Party and, and calling out their brand and saying that brand has come to represent something extra democratic, something beyond democratic norms. And I think, you know, a lot of times you'll hear in the media reporters say, you know, here's this problem. The Democrats say this and the Republicans say this. And in many instances, the Republicans are straight lying. And it's not okay to just say one side says this, one side says that, when one side is obviously lying. And I think the media has got to retrain itself. And I think civil society has to retrain itself in saying, nope, one side's cheating. And that's what it means to speak the truth at that point. It may feel uncomfortable. And of course, the Republicans will use that as evidence that they're being persecuted and that there's not a fair and balanced media. But at a certain point, when a line has been crossed, they're not entitled to the courtesies and the respect that should be given in a democratic system where both sides are playing by the rules. Or more than two sides. Hey, again. And that's a whole nother. <laughs> Wouldn't that be nice? Let's, yeah. let's not get too crazy in the fantasy zone. but Yeah, I feel like we're, we're, we're letting listeners down here because we're kind of, you know, we're bringing up this huge, enormous problem with the Republican Party. And, you know, I'm flabbergasted. We're flabbergasted. It's, it's, it's huge. It's like a, it's the whole system and that's empowering them um, that they've created to empower themselves has gotten so cyclical that the power is consolidating to a point that we've never seen in this country. And it's hard to sort of bring that up without offering a, like, just, sure, yeah. Just check this box, just turn this key, yeah. you know, just do this. It's like, it's a big, it's a big bomb to drop without offering something positive. I feel like, well, I, I, I agree, except for in, in the world of like, uh, in the world of talk therapy and psychology, right? Mm-hmm. There are problems personally that seem insurmountable um, or that you just you don't know how to even begin to address. But talking about it openly and admitting that there is a problem is a huge mm. first step. Right. And I don't think – I don't want anyone out there to be like, I personally need to be involved in defeating the Republican Party because that seems like you're fighting a big bad dragon with a foam sword. But I think that – It's important least, to know your enemy. Yeah, at least at least putting it out there and saying – we have hit this tipping point where the Republican Party is no longer interested in having moderate voices within it or no longer. Excellent inter- use of tipping point. Yeah, exactly. No longer interested in restraining an executive who's out of control. No longer interested in working across party lines. No longer interested in having a federal government involved in like 90 percent of life. They're just like, we don't want an EPA. We don't want, uh, you know, HUD. We don't want these right. things. We want to dismantle the federal government. Right. And at that point, it's very important to say we have to talk openly about this and say, yeah, there's a problem. Yeah, there's a trauma. There's an issue. There's a, something happening and it does seem insurmountable, but we at least have to talk about it. And it's not new. It's just that it's reached a critical mass. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Nothing's new under the sun. I mean, yeah, yeah exactly. But it is... Uh, it's it's getting bad. It's getting yeah. pretty bad. It's getting to a point, I think that's part of how this ties to the two tipping points, is that it's kind of getting to a tipping point where it's so bad that it may get to a point where it's no longer rain-inable. Yeah. And, and that's why I think now we're in such a critical time. Yeah. And we need to deal with these things. I mean, so much of the climate crisis is coming from the 100 biggest corporations. It was like 70% of the 
the pollution, is, uh, the climate gases coming from these hundred corporations. And so we need government now to come in big and hit a grand slam for the little guy. It hit a grand slam for humanity. And also on the, on the, on the psychology side of things, mm-hmm. it's also like, let's all say it out loud. People are having problems like sleeping at night. Mm-hmm. They're having problems believing in progress, in humanity, in government, because they're living in a system that is not working. And again, having that conversation, yeah. putting it out there and being like, okay, yeah, we're at a tipping point where people have, in 1994, right, uh, you have the Republican Party or in 96 or whatever, you have a Republican Party shutting down the government, the government's going to shut down. But people, I genuinely believe people were not losing sleep about it or they were not filled with such crushing anxiety about it. So that's that's another tipping point. The impact of the – we'll do that in the future. The impact of politics on the psychology of people and how we can survive it personally and how we can to push through it and, and create that change. But, hey, if yeah. you're out there and you're having problems sleeping at night, you're not alone. You're not alone. There's a lot of us out there waking up in the middle of the night with a, a terror, a panic attack that Lindsey Graham's going to berate us. Yeah, I think I think if if we're going, you know, if you have to work backwards from victory, imagine victory and work backwards. And one of the elements that we hit, one of these key chords that needs to be played in that song, in that march towards victory, is realizing the nature of the problem, understanding it, defining it. And it doesn't only belong within the Republican Party, but it's important to identify the Republican Party as largely if almost you know, almost entirely taken over by corporate interests and and malicious actors that are not acting like a political party to present a positive vision for us not trying to help us they're doing what's good for them and their cronies and a lot of times that's violent and when we talk about the poverty imposition on people with these tax cuts to their buddies while cutting social services for individuals we're talking about harm as I've said, I'm not one for hope. Uh, I think it's a little overrated. <laughs> Again, we got to make that poster. The picture of you with I'm not one for hope. Um, but I think there is a tipping point. You know, I think there has been an uptick in Republicans coming to our organization saying, hey, I want to get involved. This has gone too far. And, you know, and I say, you know, you, you realize that we are very critical of the Republican Party's stance on campaign finance reform. And they're like, oh, yeah, I know. And I think a lot of Republican voters are starting to say, I thought I'd never hear myself say this, but I think I may have to vote Democrat this time. And it's those people. It's this ever this fountain of youth, all these younger voters who are coming out saying, whoa, <laughs> like you guys have been drinking the Kool-Aid for a long time. Things are falling apart. This isn't working. I'm ready to vote for change. And so you're seeing an uptick in young people out there like you haven't seen for some time. So there is reason to be optimistic. <laughs> I think we did a good job of trying to convince ourselves that we, uh, yeah. <laughs> we're trying. We're really, yeah, we can have positive cognitive dissonance, right? Yeah. That's what we're trying to have. And we're trying, we're trying, we're not trying to present just a bleak image. We don't want to just depress everyone, but there's a lot more to say. And hey, what we're doing here at the People's Empowerment Project, the tipping point, this is, you know, it's a podcast brought to you by 
volunteer hours of us out here podcasting, but made possible by Democracy Coffee Drinkers. And and that's one thing you can do. I mean, vote with your dollar, support Democracy Coffee, get alternative voices out there. I mean, that, that's part of how we win, is we got to do that. So, Matt Edge, looking beyond hope. Ladies and gentlemen, John House Wilson, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Yeah, my pleasure. Please subscribe to the podcast. Thank you, Guthrie. Thank you so much. Once again, go to democracycoffee.com, get yourself some delicious fair trade organic coffee, vote with your dollar, help the People's Empowerment Project. Thanks for listening. Thank you.